And happy Sunday, everybody. I hope uh, everyone's having a good weekend. I did. I went to a movie this I went to a movie with a friend and really, really good movie. I really loved it. Anyway, um it's hot. Of course I'm always saying that lately. But it is hot. Uh, we'll give everybody a few minutes because I know we're like early this week. But the reason why is because I have yard work to do but I can't do it during the day. It's just too it's just too hot for me in my yard. So I wanted to go the show a little earlier. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your re- your reading host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. We're 35 strong up and down the state of California. And that means that we can help you from just about any locale in ca- California. Or, you know, almost in every county. So uh, if you have a paranormal problem, shoot me an email. Shoot me an email at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com or CaliforniaHaunts.org. Or find me on Facebook, on public, or there's various California haunts pages, also on Facebook that you can look me, look, you know, look, look, look the team up on. Getting close to the Fourth of July, huh? Or halfway, first weekend of summer, right? And this first weekend of summer feels like it too. Feels like the first weekend of summer. Ah, oh, man. I was gone today, so I had the AC off until about maybe uh, maybe 45 minutes ago. So it's not as cool in here as it as it could be. Normally on show nights, it's cool. It has three hours to cool the room down. So it's still a little hot in here, but it's better than no AC at all, right? A lot better. I see someone's out viewing. Fantastic. Give it a couple minutes for people to come in. Uh, if you want, come on into the chat room. We can talk, talk back and forth. I will read your comments and I will answer. But uh, we're here to read some more of the Lizzie Borden book. And we can do kind of a synopsis right now where we're at. Lizzie has committed the murders. But she's still free. She hasn't become a suspect yet. The investigation is just beginning. Hello, everybody. Welcome. We're giving everyone a little extra time because we are early today. I'm a half hour early on this. I think the whole state of California is on fire, right? Not on fire, but literally the whole state of California is hot right now. I know Southern California is sitting at about 95 right now. Just like we are. In fact, we're sitting right now currently... Where I'm at in sunny Sacramento, it is approximately da, 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 100 degrees. We just topped. And our max is supposed to be 102. But it looks like now it's going to start going down, so that's good. To give you an idea how slow it is going down, then we're not going to hit the 70s until 10 p.m. So the nearest decent temperature is going to be 82 at 9 p.m. So that's how hot it is. Anyway, I want to welcome everybody here. This is our Sunday reading day. We don't do any interviews or anything like that, but we do read a book. And uh, I've been fortunate enough that I've had some authors that have self-published their books and, and, uh, and have given me the okay to use their books to read. 
And so that's what we do every Sunday. It starts our week off. And we've got a great week of shows ahead for you guys. Wow, it's packed. Pack, pack, pack. Culminating with Casual Friday with Medium Nancy Mads. Culminating with Casual Friday with Medium Nancy Mads. Okay, I'm going to get started here in a couple minutes. Let me get my book here. Let me open up. I don't know. I heard it. <laughs> I heard it go. Oh, okay. That's fine. Okay, let me open up my antiquated tablet. Let me go in here. Disconnect. Open up. Heat makes me tired. And I was, uh, last 45 minutes, I was sitting out in my living room with my dogs and so they could get some time out after I got back from the movies. And, whew, it takes a lot out of me, I'll tell you. Because it felt good coming in here. It was, it was like walking into a refrigerator in here, even though it's not even all that cool in here. But it was like walking into a, in, into a fridge. Or a freezer, rather. A deep freezer. A closet freezer. Okay. So again, Lizzie has done the deed. And nobody is suspecting her yet. She's covered her... Tr she, you know, she thinks she's covered her tracks very well. The power of the mighty Kindle. Okay. So I forget what chapter we're in. <laughs> I just know we're at... Let's see. Location. Okay. According to this, I'm 10% through the book. Okay. I don't know what chapter. I can't remember what chapter we were in, but uh, we're at the topic of police and questions. Policemen and questions. This is the morning of the murder. At 11.35 that morning, 20 minutes after the call came into Marshall Hilliard's office, the police began to arrive at the Borden house in rapid succession. With a large portion of the officers away at the annual Rocky Point Clambake, at the amusement park on Narragansett Bay in Warwick, Rhode Island, the day patrol was about to be thrown into a mystery that defined logic, ruined careers, and changed the lives of those who those, those sucked into this vortex forever. Dr. Bowen had just delivered the news to the women waiting in the dining room that Abby Borden appeared to be deceased as well when two officers appeared at the screen door. Bowen hurried forward to greet Officer Patrick Doherty, with Deputy Sheriff Frank Wixon. I'm glad to see you, Bowen said, with a great deal of relief. He admitted the men into the house, a happy John Man a happy John Madden with the Fall River Daily Herald following behind them. What is the trouble? Officer Doherty asked. He noticed Bridget standing in the far southeast corner of the kitchen near the sink. Mr. Borden is dead, Bowen said, and let the officers and the reporter into the sitting room. When the doctor pulled back the sheet, the men were surprised to see the extent of the elderly man's wounds. I noticed there was one wound down here across the eye. That was very deep, Officer Doherty testified at the preliminary hearing. It looked to me on the left side of the face. The right side was on the sofa, and the eye seemed to be knocked out, hanging by some thread or something. There was another wound. There was another wound that came down by the nose, or down the cheekbone. The cheekbone was wide open by the cheekbone, clear down the neck, was laid right open. In low tones, Dr. Bowen told Officer Doherty and Deputy Sheriff Wixon 
that he was satisfied something was wrong, for they were all sick the day before. To make matters worse, Bowen continued, Mrs. Borden is lying dead upstairs. I suppose she saw the killing of her husband and, and, run, up, and run upstairs and died with fright from the shock. Dr. Bowen, clearly embarrassed, denied during later testimony that he said any such thing. He now stated that he said she died from shock from her wounds. Officer Doherty requested to see Mrs. Borden's body. He found her lying face down between the bed and the dressing case. Several spots of blood were on the bed and also a large tuft of hair, he later testified. On examining the body, I found she was lying in a pool of blood. I informed the doctor of the fact and he expressed much surprise. I wanted to examine the woman, but there was no room between the bed and the dressing case to walk. I walked back to the foot of the bed, up around the north side of the bed, and I pulled it out about three feet away from her. I stooped down and I saw she was lying in a pool of thick black blood, and her head was all cut. I put one finger, I put one finger here, parentheses, under one of Abby's arms that lay above her head, and, and raised this a little bit so I could see under the hair around the ear better. I asked the doctor, Mr. Wixon, and the reporter to remain by the bodies until I notified the marshal. Officer Do Doherty hurried downstairs and out of the house. He ran the short distance to Gorman's undertaking business at the corner of Spring and Second, where he knew he could find a phone. He called Marshal Hilliard with his findings at the Borden home and then hurried back across the street. He passed the ever-vigilant Charles Sawyer at the door and stopped into the kitchen to question Bridget, who was still standing there. Mr. Borden came in the front door at 10.50, Bridget said, in answer to Officer Doherty's question. I was upstairs, parentheses, when the murder occurred, and heard no noise until Miss Lizzie called me. Moments later, at 11.37, Officer Moley, Mr. George Allen, and Mr. Devine arrived at the house. This was Allen's second trip, after originally giving the alarm when he returned to the police station after seeing Mr. Borden's wounds. Officer William H. Medley arrived within a few minutes of the others, around 20 or 19 minutes to 12. Officer Doherty turned his attention to Lizzie, who was sitting next to Alice Russell in the dining room. Mrs. Churchill was fanning her. Miss Borden, Officer Doherty began, where were you when your father was killed? I was at the barn, she answered quietly. Is there any Portuguese working on a farm over the river for your father? Bridget, in parentheses, Bridget may have mentioned a Portuguese working at the Swansea at the Swansea farm, possibly referring to Alfred Johnson, who was actually as sweet as you said. No, sir. Who works for your father? Mr. Eddie and Mr. Johnson, and Mr. Eddie has been sick. Have either Mr. Eddie or Mr. Johnson been in town this morning, or up here to the house this morning? Doherty asked. No, sir, Lizzie said emphatically. Neither Mr. Eddie nor Mr. Johnson would hurt my father. Miss Borden, did you hear any screams or outcries? No, sir. I heard some kind of peculiar noise. Can you describe the noise, Doherty asked? No, not very well. Something like scraping. Officer Michael Mullally entered the dining room as Officer Doherty went into the sitting room. He approached Lizzie. She stood up wearily from the lounge and to his questions repeated again her actions of the morning. She told the officer that she had been out of doors and when she came in, she found her father dead on the sofa. Do you know what kind of property your father had on him? Officer Molly, excuse me, Officer Molly asked, his mind focusing on a possible burglary as, as a motive for the murder. He has a silver watch and chain, a pocketbook of money in it. 
and a gold ring on his little finger, she said. Officer Moley testified at the preliminary hearing that the following happened. By, the, by that time, Officer Doherty had appeared in the doorway, and I told him to look and see if Mr. Borden has the property on him. He went to look and came back. He reported to me that his watch and chain was on him. He did not say anything about a pocketbook. I then inquired of Miss Bo Borden whether she knew if there was a hatchet or axe on the premises, and she said yes. She told me Bridget Sullivan would show it to me in the cellar. I then came out, and I went upstairs where, where, where Mrs. Borden lay on the floor in a pool of blood. Parentheses. Sheriff Wixon removed Andrew's watch from the body. It was attached by a black braid to his lapel. Alice closed the door from the dining room to the kitchen, shutting out the heat from the stove and the noise of the constantly arriving police, reporters, and doctors. She sat by Lizzie on the lounge and noticed the last hook of her waist blouse was undone and the fabric pulled out. Alice reached to unhook the next one to allow Lizzie to breathe easier. Lizzie quickly stopped her, saying, I am not faint. My clothes are loose. Alice stopped and found her instead. They would not have respite for long. Charles Sawyer watched from the screen door as people continued to arrive. The front fence was lined with curious citizens, staring at the three-story house in excitement. Children were standing on the stringer of the fence and the gates. Others, without trepidation, entered the yard and walked about the house and grounds. John Cunningham and reporter Walter P. Stevens of the Fall River News walked along the lawn between the Kelly house and the Bordens, peering into the long grass for footprints or clues. They tried the cellar door and found it locked. The woodpile at the rear at the rear fence was was glanced at, as well as Dr. Chagnon's orchard at the rear of the property. It was a free for all for the public. Crime scene contamination was yet to become a buzzword in forensic terms. To say the least, the Borden scene was hopelessly tra trampled over. Parentheses: John Cunningham later reports they saw no footprints in the tall grass between the Kelly and Borden homes. A curious fact is Bridget had just been all over that area washing windows and making runs to the barn for water. End of parentheses. Dr. Bowen stepped into the dining room where Lizzie was lying on the lounge. Lizzie? He asked quietly. Do you know what became of the note your stepmother received? I have looked in the wastebaskets and not found it. Lizzie said she did not know anything about it. Did you look in her pocket? Dr. Bowen asked, reading Abby's purse. Lizzie shook her head. Well, then, Alice spoke up. She must have burned it. Yes, Lizzie agreed. She must have burned it. Chapter 17, Thursday, August 14th, 1892. Searches and Discoveries. Officers Patrick Doherty and Michael Moley began a quick search of the house. They decided to begin with the attic. They found Bridget seated on the back stairs near the rear door and told her they needed to search the third floor. She went up with them and unlocked her bedroom door. The police officers peered into her small closet where they noticed a, a wooden water tank. They asked to see inside her trunk and were shown a few articles of clothing and some mementos wrapped carefully in tissue paper. The servant seemed to have only a few dresses. They peered under her bed and, satisfied, went into the room next to hers. There they found spar furnishings with a bed that appeared not to have been used for some time. When when asked who stayed in that room, Bridget replied Mr. Morse sometimes used it when he visited, or an occasional farmhand. The other two attic rooms got a quick cursory look. Officer Moley testified later that they were looking for a man or a weapon, anything that would figure in the murders. 
The two men left the attic and began their descent down the stairs. Stopping at the room on the second landing, they were informed that was Mr. and Mrs. Boylan's bedroom. Bridget unlocked the door with the key she had been given to retrieve the sheets earlier. The men entered and looked beneath the bed and around the room. They peered into the room where the safe sat, along with the desk and bureau. At some point, they approached the door leading to Lizzie Borden's room and slid back the bolt. It would not open. At some point, Alice Russell entered the Borden's room to watch the proceedings. Alice testified during the preliminary hearing. I remember being up in Mr. and Mrs. Borden's room for some officer. I remember they were asking me about the rooms that, that went out of it. The door into Miss Lizzie's room was hooked. They pulled the screw out, I judged. I remember. I asked them to let me look in first. I did not know what the condition of the room was. I pulled the portier, which is a curtain, aside, and looked in. and said, it is all right. And they went in. I do not recollect if I went with them or not. That was before Miss Lizzie went up to her room. Parentheses. In the upcoming paragraphs, it will become apparent that at the time Doherty and Mullally made their initial search of Lizzie's room area, Emma's door is open, and they merely peeked into her room. The dress closet at the end of the short hallway outside of Lizzie's bedroom door is unlocked. After Lizzie comes upstairs to her room and changes the pink wrapper, both Emma's bedroom door and the dress closet clothes press are locked and required a key to open them. Why? What circumstance required the need to keep people out? Officers Doherty and Mullally testified they went into all the rooms on the second floor that they get into. Officer Doherty admitted they did not go into Miss Emma's room. He said they did go into the clothes press dress closet at the end of the hall and looked there. Attorney Knowlton seemed surprised they had looked in that room, asking them three times if they did go in that, room, that closet at that time. It was doubtless due to the fact that the clothes press door was found locked later when Officer Fleet tried to open it. Lizzie had to unlock it for him. After protesting, there was nothing to be found in there. Bridget then led the officers to the cellar, and what started out as a routine search exploded during the Superior Court testimonies of Officer Mowley and Assistant Marshal Fleet into one of the biggest mysteries of the case. Axes in the Cellar During the preliminary hearing August 25th to September 1st, 1892, Officer Pratt Patrick Doherty was asked about the initial search of the Borden Cellar the day of the murders on August 4th. He gave the following testimony. Attorney Knowlton, who were you, uh, who were you, okay, who with you, okay, who were you with when you went to the cellar? Doherty. Mr. Mullally and the servant girl directly behind us went down. Knowlton, the cellar is a very light cellar? Doherty, it is. The washroom is very light. Knowlton, as you go down the cellar stairs from the back entry, you come into a room that is used for what? Doherty, the water closet, I believe. When you get to the bottom of the stairs, there is a kind of hallway or space. Knowlton, did you see Mr. Mo did you see Mr. Mowley find the axes and hatchets? Knowlton, I mean Doherty. <laughs> it's confusing after a while. Doherty, not when he found him. Not when he found them. Knowlton, you saw him reaching up to them? Doherty, yes. I turned to the left and went over to the sink and I looked at this pail that was spoken of the other day. That was during testimony. Of course, I called Mr. Morley's attention to it. I've, I was at the time probably 12 or 14 feet from Mr. Morley, who was in the next room. He was looking at something in his hand. I walked over and he had a hatchet. I guess I took and glanced at it 
and said, that looks all right, Mike. Something like that, and left. And, and, and left him. The girl was standing with her hand about as high as her head. They were both reaching up. Knowlton, when you say the girl, you mean Miss Sullivan. Doherty, yes, sir. Knowlton, I want the location of the place where you found the axes and hatches. Doherty, near the furnace there. Knowlton, on a shelf? Doherty, yes, it was about five or six feet high, ran east to west. Knowlton, so he had to reach up a little above the line of his shoulder to get them. Doherty, yes, sir. Knowlton, were they in anything? Doherty, I could not say. I thought they were on a shelf. I could not say as there was as there was anything else there. Knowlton, did you know what he did with them? Doherty, he laid one down beside his feet and came over and looked at the pail where I was. Knowlton, that would be in part of the cellar near the foot of the stairs where he laid it down. Doherty, yes, sir. Knowlton, what became of the other three axes? I don't know, Doherty, I don't know. I was interrupted just at that time. Okay. Officer Michael Mullally gave the following testimony concerning his actions in the cellar at the same time as Doherty's. Mullally went down cellar. Bridget led the way to the left. We went in, and in small box, I would not say whether it was a partition across there or not, but reached up and took two hatchets out of this box and passed it to me. We came out of there and went into an apartment south of the furnace, I believe. Or hot water heater. I believe it was. If in there we found two axes. I took them down. Knowlton, where were they? They were on the south side of the cellar up against the wall. I would not say whether they were on a shelf or whether there was something put there to hold them up. I know I reached up and took them down. Knowlton, was this a covered box these two hatchets were in? Mullally, no. The top was open. Knowlton, what did you notice about them? Mullally, on the large one, there was a small rust spot. On the axes, both handles were covered with ashes. Knowlton, anything else? Mullally, then, while I was in the washroom, I believe it was Mr. Doherty called my attention to some cloths in a pail. We took them out and looked at them and put them back again. No, I won't say I put them back again. Yeah, put them back again. No, I won't say I put them back again. At this point in Mullally's testimony, and in Doherty's, with respect to the pail with bloody cloths, Attorney Knowlton and Mr. Adams, for the defense, back away from them, making no claim to them as possible connection to the murders, as they have been told they were Lizzie's minstrel tales. Attorney Knowlton did say, I do not bind myself to any accidental future discoveries. He was leaving the door open concerning the tales to future evidence that might see them in a different light. Mullally's testimony was brought back to the hatchet, to the hatchet discoveries, Knowlton, this is Knowlton, as you go down, you have you have kind of a walk there and a passageway. Hang on one second, okay. That leads right to the water closet, if I remember. Mullally, yes, sir. Knowlton, go by the water closet? Mullally, no, sir. Just before you get to the water closet, on the south side of the house, we found those hatchets. The cellar steps are on the north side of the house, just before you get to the water closet. We went in the, into the department in the cellar. Yeah, we went into this department of the cellar where there was a lot of wood piled up. We carried out the hatchets and put them on the cellar floor. Knowlton. Did you later see them in Dolan's hands? Mullally. Yes, sir. They, they were the same ones I carried out. 
Mr. Adams on cross-examination. Adams. The axes you see around the room where the, where the furnace was are one for sure? Holy no. That is further towards the street, coming towards the second, coming towards the second street. Adams. They were up, so you had to take them down. Molly. They were up, so I had to reach up and take them down. Lying down lengthwise on a cross piece, I should say. They were covered with the they were covered with ashes, they were. When I brought them in, I laid them on the floor in the washroom. Adams. That is a brick floor? Molly. Yes, sir. Adams. How did you know this this was a rust spot? Could you tell by rubbing it? Molly, by looking at it. I did not touch it. The larger hatchet was quite sharp. The smaller hatchet was not as sharp. I did not see any blood on any of them. Axes or hatchets that I could call blood. I did not see any hair on them either. Adams, do you know how Dr. Dolan came into the possession of those axes and hatchets? Molly, he came down the cellar and I gave him this large hatchet and he looked at it. Adams, what did he do with them? Molly, I don't know what he did with it. The other axes laid there. I do not know whether he examined them or not. Bridget Sullivan collaborated the officer's stories, with one major exception. She denied reaching up or touching the hatchets. Officer Molly said she passed them to him. She did not remember how many hatchets and axes there were. She did say the hatchets were standing on the standing with their heads down in the box, old star, which was an old starch box, and their handles sticking up. When asked about the wood she used for the stove, she denied needing to go into the wood cellar where the axes were kept. Parentheses. I had no business in that area. I'm sorry, quote, I had no business in that in that part of the cellar at all. There were two wood cellars. The wood cellar Bridget used was the first one where the hatchets were found. The second wood cellar contained the two axes. Thursday, August 4th, 1892. John Morris and Changing Tales. If the strange case of Abby and Andrew Bourne's murders was beginning to look like a fall down the rabbit hole, the arrival of Lizzie's secret of Uncle Morris would only add to the confusing testimony. John Morris walked up 2nd Street from Pleasant Avenue. Excuse me, it's hot here. His stomach was in a knot. Andrew Borden dead, murdered. His mind was whirling, his mind was whirling with the fallout that was about to happen. He knew of only one person who would have done this, yet the implication staggered the mind. He had barely begun the uphill climb toward the Borden house when he saw the activity ahead of him. People were walking toward the house with excited exclamations. The words stabbing, murder, and police hung in the segment air. By the time he reached the white fence that fronted, the number, that fronted number 92, he could barely see the side door for the wave of bodies. He needed to think. John opened the north gate and walked to the back door of the property. There were people trying to peer into the kitchen windows, and they were looking around the grape arbor and trees. Someone said, Mrs. Borden's dead upstairs, and he stopped in his tracks. Both, both dead. His heart pounding, he tried to think. How could this happen? He just saw Andrew a few hours ago. Without noticing, he picked up a pair and bit into it. That the Swansea deal was over was without a doubt a thought that made his stomach clench. So many people would be affected by that alone. It was not until he saw a policeman eyeing him that he realized his troubles could go much deeper. Mrs. Churchill was in the back entry when she saw John Morris come from the direction of the backyard, eating a pear. Some spectators reported later 
he had that they had seen Morris leaning nonchalantly against the barn as the crowd swelled. One police officer said he watched him eat three pears while standing there. Mr. Morris admitted only one. Strangely, Charles Sawyer testified he saw John Morris come toward the side steps from the direction of the front gate and the side yard. He did not know who the man was. The following is from Charles Sawyer's inquest testimony concerning John Morris' arrival at the house. He came towards me from the gate. I stood on the steps at the time, standing outside of the door and holding the door outside. He came along the steps and he says, For God's sake, what has happened here? I looked at him. I had not seen him. He was a stranger to me. I told him Mr. and Mrs. Borden had been murdered, been killed, something to that effect. My God, he says, and I left. Mr. And, and, and I left Mr. Borden right, right at his door, and he told me to come back to dinner. He was coming from the gate along the walk. Whether he had come through the gate or not, I don't know. At that time, there was quite a little crowd out there. They had been driven out of the yard by an officer there in attendance. There were, there were people in the street. My view was limited, not more than the width of the yard, but the fences appeared to be pretty well filled up. And previous to that, there had been quite a crowd in the yard. Attorney Knowlton, Attorney Knowlton, did you notice whether Mr. Morris was eating a pear or not, eating anything? Sawyer, no, sir. He was not when he spoke to me at that time. Knowlton, what did he do when you told him? Sawyer, what kind of God have we got that will permit a deed like this to be done? He stood there a few minutes and then went inside. Alice heard John bellowing Lizzie's name and opened the dining room door. She stepped back in surprise as John Morris burst into the dining room, leaving a rattle of Mrs. Churchill in the kitchen. He barely glanced at Lizzie, laying on the lounge near the dining room table, as he flung open the sitting room door. He was not prepared for the number of people gathered there. The entire thing was too surreal. As Dr. Bowen once again peeled back the sheet for John to see, he reeled. This could not be happening. He couldn't bear to take more than a sideways glance at his brother-in-law's mutilated features. Swallowing hard, he asked where Abby was. He was told upstairs. Gripping the stairway railing, John climbed up toward the room he had just slumbered in the night before. It was a nightmare. A walking nightmare. He barely, he barely registered the, the many doctors crouched around the form, lying near the dressing bureau, whose, whose mirror he had peered into that morning as he adjusted his collar. Holding on to the rear bedpost for support, he looked down. The image registered in his mind in snippets. He saw the tired morning dress she had worn as she dusted, while he and Andrew put the finishing touches on their brilliant plan that morning in the sitting room. The moved bed and something lying on the white bedspread that looked like hair. Her small feet, encased in worn house, in worn house shoes, could be seen besides the man's knees as the doctors probed and measured. As one of them moved aside, John saw the bloody pulp that had been Abby Borden's head. His stomach whirling, he turned and fled the room. His knees threatened to betray him as he made his way down the front stairs. By the time he surged into the dining room, the fear, nausea, and tension had reached the boiling point. Lizzie looked up from the lounge at, at the reddened face of the six-foot man towering above her, and she waited, heart-pounding. If anyone who guessed who murdered her father and stepmother, it would be her Uncle John. Nerves screaming, he exploded. What in God's name happened here? As he hollered the words, he glanced up at the ceiling in, in the direction of the guest room upstairs where Abby Borden lay. It was that simple movement, 
that upper glance, that was the first revelation to Alice Russell that these two people were not dead from poisoning. They had been murdered. Alice Russell, during her inquest testimony, stated something he, John Morris, had said about their being murdered and looked up and, and looked up to her. Then, then it dawned on, on my mind that it was cold-blooded murder. That is the first idea that I had that it was murder. Mrs. Churchill stood by in horrified silence. The tension in the room was palpable. She looked at the man's clenched fist, Lizzie's flushed face, and Alice Russell's quaking form and decided she, she could stand no more. The noise of the crowd was coming through the dining room windows. It must be dinner time, and she had seven mouths to feed waiting for her next door. Just as she was about to speak, John Morris whirled and left, whirled and left the room, slamming the dining room door that led to the kitchen after him. Lizzie, Miss Churchill said, her voice quaking, I must go home now. If there is anything I can do for you, I'm willing to do it. Lizzie Borden heard the voice as if it were coming up from the depths of a well. The freight train noise was back, rushing through her head, causing the room to spin. She finally turned toward the speaker and comprehended what had just been said to her. I'm sure there will be, by and by, she said mechanically. Mrs. Churchill left the dining room, closing the door behind her. She saw Bridget in the kitchen and stopped to talk to her. After more police arrived, including Assistant Marshal Fleet, she finally headed home and began a new meal. It was close to 12. As Adelaide Churchill left the Borden house and paused next to Charles Sawyer, who still stood on the outside step, she was shocked to see the crowd of people crowding the street, sidewalk, and pressing up against her fence. As she exited the house, a buzz spread through the crowd. She heard her name whispered among several women. The enormity of what she had just been a part of hit her full in the face. Stepping gingerly down the stone, the stone side steps, Addie happened to glance back and saw John Morris making his way to the backyard. The police held, about, held back the crowd as she walked through the north gate of the Morden property. The press of strangers was everywhere. It wasn't until she stepped through her door into the familiar furnishings of her home that she allowed herself to collapse. A rumor spread that Adelaide Churchill told a friend she had seen something that day at Lizzie Borden's that she would not ever speak of, not even if they threatened to tear out my tongue. Mrs. Churchill, Mrs. Churchill did not return to the Borden house, not that day, or the, any of the ones following. Dr. William H. Dolan Dr. William H. Dolan had stumbled across the Borden murders quite by accident. He had been traveling down 2nd Street when he saw the commotion going on in front of the house next to Mrs. Churchill's. It was 11.40 or 11.45. During a rather confrontational inquisition by Lizzie's attorney, Mr. Adams, during the preliminary hearing in late August, Dr. Dolan was asked a series of questions pertaining to his movements at the Borden house that day. Adams, I understand you had been a medical examiner a year. Dolan, yes, sir, about, sir, yes, sir, about, surgery is not my specialty, but I do, cons but I do considerable in that line. The dogs are playing out there, that's how you kind of hear them in the background. I'm a general physician. I have overseen one homicide since becoming a medical examiner. Adams, you spoke of, you, see, you, you spoke of repairing to this house, Borden's, the fourth, of August at a certain hour. Dolan, yes, sir. Adams, was it a pleasant day? It surely was not a rainy day. Adams, 
Was it a very hot day? Dolan, it was, sir. Adams, whenever he went there, the sun was about meridian, which is new, by the way. Dolan, yes, sir. Adams, referring to where Mr. Dolan went when he entered the side door of the warden's house. Who was in the kitchen when he went in there? Dolan, Bridget Sullivan and, and Dr. Bowen. Dr. Bowen met me just as I went in. He was coming from the sitting room. Adams, you went in the sitting room on, out of the kitchen? Dolan, yes, sir. Adams, that brought Mr. That, that brought Mr. Borden so that he faced you. Who? <laughs> so, you know, it's the way these guys talk. Who were in the sitting room at that time? Dolan, officers Molly and Doherty. Parentheses, Lizzie was in the dining room at this time with Miss Russell and Mrs. Church and Mrs. Churchill. Adams, what did you do then and there? Dolan, I took down the corner of the sheet and saw the face of Mr. Borden. I asked where Mrs. Borden was. I was informed she was upstairs. I went up and saw her. Adams, when you went upstairs, you went up the front way? Dolan, yes, sir. Adams, are those winding stairs? Dolan, they are to a certain extent. Adams, I did not ask you that, did I? Dolan, you asked if they were, if they were winding stairs. They are to a certain extent. The doctor replied, nonplussed. Adams, what was the carpet, if any, on the floor? Dolan, I should say Brussels. Adams, what what was its color as to being as to being dark or light? Dolan, I do not think it was either very dark or light. I considered it medium. I think it was figured. I am not positive. Adams, do you remember whether the wall was papered in the hall? Dolan, I think they were. Adams, if they were, what were they papered with? Dolan, paper. The courtroom erupts in laughter. Adams, what sort of paper? When I asked you what they were papered with, did you understand me or did you desire to create a laugh? The attorney asked hotly. Dolan, I do not know what you mean. Dolan answered with mock innocence. You were, so, you were so explicit with your terms, I thought it would be with mine. The confrontation continued as Mr. Adams finally elicited from, Dol from Dr. Dolan what occurred in the guest room per pertaining to Abby Borden viewing. Um, parentheses, a viewing is merely a name given to a doctor's brief viewing of the body. It is not an autopsy. Dr. Dolan admitted to Attorney Adams to having Dr. <laughs> to having Dr. Bowen, Dr. Tur Dr. Turtlelot, and Dr. Handy with him in the room, examining Abby's wounds. Dolan said he could see Abby's feet while standing at the guest room door, projecting from under the bed. Her hands were extended over her head, not over it, but but around the head, not resting on the arms, the head in a circle. Her head was three to four feet from the east wall. Dr. Dolan, when asked you know, what, whether anyone moved her body, admitted he and Dr. Brown raised her up to get a better look at her wounds. The area between the bed and bureau was in partial shadow. When the body was returned to the floor, they tried to approximate the original position in which she was found. But, as shown in the as shown in the photographer's photo taken later that afternoon, her hands are now beneath her rather than arched out above her head. The testimony of Dr. Dolan continued during the preliminary hearing with Attorney Adams for the defense in his usual sparring forum. Adams, Mrs. Borden was a well-nourished woman? Dolan, yes, sir. Adams, she was five feet three inches or three or four inches in height? Dolan, three. Adams, she weighed over 200 pounds? Dolan, yes, sir. Adams, that made her more than stout. A fat woman? Dolan, 
Yes, she was fat. Dolan testified earlier that Abby was from 210 to 225 pounds. Adams, did you, did, did you, either Dolan or both of you, put your fingers or hands in these wounds? Or any of them? Dolan, I put my hands in. I do not know whether he did or not. Did yours get bloody? Dolan, yes, sir. Adams, do you know whether any blood dropped from your hands? Dolan, I'm quite confident it did not. I beg your pardon. I did get two or three spots on my pantaloons. I think that was downstairs, though. Attorney Knowlton for the prosecution asked Dr. Dolan to describe how Abby was dressed. Dolan, she was dressed as you would expect to find a housewife at that hour in the morning, in some calico dress. Knowlton, anything on her head? Dolan, no, sir. There was a silk handkerchief. Whether it had been around her head or not, I cannot say. It was not around the head when I saw it, but near the head. It was a silk one. A pocket handkerchief, I should say. Same, same as they tie around their heads sometimes when dusting. It was very near her head, practically touching, touching the head, but not on it. It was, it was not knotted. It was so old. It was torn very freely. I should not think it was cut. There was blood on it from the surrounding blood. Dr. Dolan admitted that the first time he saw Abby Borden's body that day, he only looked at it, and then returned downstairs to focus on Andrew Borden's body. He felt of his wounds, looked, he felt of his wounds, looked at the blood spatter covering the wallpaper at the rear of the sofa, the parlor door, and the long string of blood inside the dining room door frame. He then returned upstairs for the second viewing of Abby's body, and it was then he felt of her wounds, and along with Dr. Bowen, lifted her to a sitting position. The doctor would later testify that there was a blood spot near the north window facing Mrs. Churchill's that could have only gotten there during the first wound inflicted upon Mrs. Borden. In the doctor's opinion, Abby was standing at that window and turned to face her attacker when the first blow fell. Blood was also found on the mop board on the east wall before her head, along, uh, along the bed frame, where the counterpane had been originally tucked in during the attack. It shows, parentheses, it shows hanging out in the crime scene photograph as the police had searched the bedding before the photograph arrived late, the photographer arrived late in the afternoon. It was hastily put back together and the bed moved back into place after Officer Doherty moved it in his initial viewing of the body. More blood spatter was found along the top of the swollen drawers of the dressing bureau, the marble base and the pillow sham on the bed nearest Abby's body. As mentioned, her fake switch of hair was lying on the white bedspread. Dolan testified that Abby's clothing was soaked with blood halfway down her back and her entire bodice wetting her underclothes. The pool of blood beneath and around her head has soaked through the Brussels carpeting to the floor below. Dr. Dolan and the Royal Medical Examiner was allowed to question witnesses to get at the facts of the homicides. He questioned Lizzie, but he was not the first to corner her in the bedroom. Adams, did you ever have any talk with the defendant Lizzie Borden at any time? Dolan, yes sir, I had a few words with her. Adams, did you have any talk with her then? Dolan, I do not recollect if I had any words with her when I went in or not. Adams, where was she? Dolan, in the dining room, sort of reclining on the lounge. Mrs. Churchill was with her and Miss Russell. I saw, I saw her then pass out the door and go upstairs. Adams, when was it you had any talk with her, if you can remember? Dolan, when she was sitting in her room upstairs that same day, 
It must have been quarter to one or half past one. Adams, what was it? Dolan, I asked her if her mother had received a note. She said she had. I asked her if she had seen the note. And she said no. I asked her if she knew who brought it. She said she did not know and, th and thought it was a boy. I asked her what her mother did with the note. She said she did not know. In all probability, she burned it in the kitchen stove. That is all I can remember about this conversation with Lizzie. Alice Russell did her best to keep Lizzie calm. There were always people coming and talking to her. Alice would testify. With the interconnecting rooms of the house's layout, there was no privacy to be had. Some men came through the dining room on the way to the kitchen, or new policemen, doctors, and reporters came in through the screen door and entered into the dining room in search of the sitting room. The crowd outside the open windows had now spread throughout 2nd Street. Charles Sawyer admitted that there were over 500 people filling the street outside. The Fall River newspapers said mill workers had walked off the job as the gossip trickled down through the factories. It didn't help that most of the rumors of the murder found their mark at the new meal hour. Food was forgotten as citizens left their homes and jobs to stand gawking at the drab green house with the two gates. The police had their hands full, keeping the crowd from entering the yard. Many found a way to penetrate the barricade. Lizzie sat on the lounge in the dining room, a flood of activity around her. The Bedford cord dress she wore beneath the calico was taking a, was taking a toll on her. As the temperature outside climbed, she felt her, she, she felt her res resolve faltering. She could barely breathe, and parts of the, of the Bedford were sticking to her. Alice glanced nervously at Lizzie as, as the shouts of the crowds only a few feet from the open dining room windows reached their ears. Lizzie looked pale. Her head was lolling, and her breathing was becoming labored. At that moment, Dr. Bowen walked in and came toward Lizzie, whose chin was resting on her chest. Maybe you should take her up to her room, Dr. Bowen testified, saying. He could hear the raised voices outside shouting such words as murder and old man Borden. Parentheses, Alice would later testify during the inquest that she did not remember hearing anyone telling Lizzie to go to her room. Alice was relieved to stand and help Lizzie from her seat. Several of the officers turned to look at them as they entered the sitting room and stepped through to the front room entry door, the front room entry doorway. As they came to the staircase, they waited for several more men to come down past them. Alice was shocked the little house could hold this many people. She stepped into the parlor for a few moments to see several officers searching there. Lizzie was unaware that Miss Russell had actually helped them in their search of the bedrooms on the second floor earlier. And Mrs. Churchill kept vigilance in the dining room. Lizzie's hook to her bedroom door was now pulled from its frame. Finally, they climbed the front stairs, both women holding on to the railing for support. This was Alice's first glimpse of the second floor that day, and she feared she would see Abby's body. No one had told her just where Mrs. Borden was lying. The sound of men's voices was everywhere, several coming from the guest room. She couldn't help herself as she and Lizzie came to the curve of the stairs. She glanced to the left through the open door. From this angle, all she could see was an ocean of men's trouser legs. The bed had been moved and was close to blocking the door. The old fireplace that had always been covered by a mat by the massive headboard was now in full view, making the room she had sat in so often look alien and foreboding. Alice could see nothing of Mrs. Borden's form. Lizzie stepped on the landing and taking away keys from her dress pocket, 
unlocked her bedroom door and gratefully stepped inside. Alice scurried in after her, shutting the door behind them. The room was hot and close, but it was blissfully free of strangers. It was then Lizzie realized Alice was holding her handkerchiefs from the dining room table. Those are the ones I was ironing, she said to Alice. Some were still damp. You can lay those in the top drawer over there, Lizzie said with the iron lens. Alice took the others that were damp and hung them on Emma's towel bar in the next room. At this time, Emma's door is still unlocked. Before Alice could say anything, Lizzie faced her and said, When it is necessary for an undertaker, I want Winward. Alice didn't need to ask what she meant. James E. Winward's undertaking was considered the finest in Fall River. All the elite on the hill used Winward. For Lizzie Borden, he was, one, he was the only choice to handle the funeral arrangements. For her father, James. Okay, for her father. James C. Renwick actually prepared the bodies for burial, but it was Winward's establishment that oversaw the details. That Gorman's undertaking literally steps away from the corner of Spring and Second did not even register to Lizzie. This was the establishment to which Officer Doherty dashed to use the phone. Due to its close proximity to the boarding house, it would be Winward or nothing. Alice paused and then realized telling Dr. Moore of Lizzie's preference in preparation of the bodies could be time-sensitive. She left the room and threaded her way down past the people on the stairs. She asked someone to give Dr. Bowen a message that she needed to speak with him, that she was not willing to go into the sitting room. She waited in the front hall for over ten minutes for him to come to her, occasionally peeking into the parlor at the search still going on. As soon as Alice left her bedroom, Lizzie walked quickly to the dress closet at the end of the second-story landing. The men in the guest room had their backs to the open door and took no notice of her. She heard someone ask to be handled, to be handed the yardstick that sat near the sewing machine. Opening the door of the clothes press, she quickly selected the dress that was loose with a trailing hemline. She could no longer stand a two-piece blouse, waist, and skirt. Lizzie took a pink and white striped wrapper from a peg and went into the hall. She left the closet, locked it, and walked back to her room. Knowing Alice could return any time, Lizzie stepped to the only place where there was privacy, her sister Emma's small room. She closed the door and hurriedly began unhooking the blue calico dress, perspiration straining her armpits. With both hands, she opened the front to find that it was sticking in places to the bedford cord beneath it. The blood spatter had done as she feared. While still moist, it had stuck and dried to the outer dress. She pulled the fabric free of the stains. Releasing her arms from the calico sleeves, she felt a huge weight lifted from her. The air pimpled her damp arms. Lizzie looked at the other side of the calico blouse waist. There were several areas with dried blood stains. She looked down at the torn bed for cord blouse she was still wearing, like a chemise, now sleeveless. Several spots of blood speckled its bodies. Running a hand over the bed for stains, she was relieved to see they were dry. The calico she had just removed would be a problem, however. Someone rattled the doorknob to her bedroom that to her bedroom that leads to the guest chamber on, on the other side. She froze. She knew it was locked and bolted. Her heavy writing desk pressed against it. Still, it was unnerving to hear them trying to get in. She had to hurry. Stepping from the calico skirt, she turned it inside out and looked. There were a few dry blood spots that had transferred from the Benford cord. How she wished she could take off the corded dress as well. But for now, 
but that's the only safe place she could keep it. No man in Victorian New England would dare look under her dress in search of another, in search of another one. Lizzie put on the pink and white wrapper with the soft sheen of served in sheer bonus. It gave her so much more room and freedom of movement. The half train swept the floor, which was exactly what she needed. The Bedford cord was completely covered. Lizzie picked up the two halves, the calico dress, and hung them on the peg in Emma's closet. Only a few of her sister's items remained there, as Emma had planned to stay a month with the, with the Brownells and pack nearly all her belongings. She glanced up at the small pillowcase, hiding the torn sleeves and hem of the Bedford cord dress. She felt easier. Shortly it would be over. Lizzie doubted anyone would pay attention to their bedrooms. When things settled down, she would hide the dress somewhere else until she could destroy it. Surely the police had only needed. Surely the police had only needed to now go out and look for the murderer. Just as she closed the small closet, she heard someone opening her bedroom door. She stepped from Emma's room, trying to trying tying the red satin ribbon of her gown as Alice Russell entered from the landing. Serendipitously, Lizzie locked Emma's door behind her. Alice breathlessly told her that she had spoken with Dr. Bowen and he would handle notifying Linworth. If she was surprised Lizzie had changed dresses, she didn't show it. She later testified that Lizzie was merely doing what any woman would do, making herself more respectable to, you know, to, to receive the people who kept coming to talk to her. Lizzie's bedroom door could not be in Linworth's place. It sat to the right at the top of the stairs, inches from the top rung, each per top rung, each person coming to see Abby's body was talking was taking the opportunity to peer into the other rooms on the landing. The clothes press was opposite her door, leaving only her room and the guest room. Lizzie finally crossed to her door and locked it. Alice sat in the small chair next to Lizzie's writing desk. Lizzie sank down into her lounge across from Alice. She carefully arranged the long fold of the wrapper about her shoes. Alice was relieved to see Lizzie's nerves seemed to have rallied. She appeared steadier, and there was some color in her cheeks. As she washed her smooth and wavy hair in place, Alice finally asked the question she had waited all morning to ask. She had heard so many people inquire of Lizzie where she was when, she, where she was when the murder of her father transpired. Out in the barn, she seemed. Out in the barn seemed an odd place to be on such a hot day, hot August morning. Lizzie, she began quietly. Alice was still rattled. In fact, she had to clasp her hands in her lap to keep them from shaking. What were you out in the barn for? Lizzie looked at her old friend with those clear protruding eyes that, that held so many secrets. In the early afternoon light in the bedroom, they appeared green, the whites glistening as if they were underwater. She paused only for a moment and said, I went to the barn to get a piece of tin and iron to fix my screen. I was ironing handkerchiefs, and my flat iron was not hot, and I thought I would go and get that while I was waiting. You know, there was everything up there, and I went to see if I could not get a piece of tin or iron to fix it. Alice tried to process this new information. There was a lot to take in. The town hall clock had barely struck the half-past hour at noon. The murderers were only... The murders, okay, sorry, the, the murders were only discovered a little over an hour ago. It had felt like the morning had dragged on forever. The voices of the men in the guest room were ever present, sometimes soft and 
and talked with conspiracies, other times calling out for assistance. At every few minutes, someone rattled the doorknobs to Lizzie's room. The door of the guest room was right next to where Alice was seated, directly behind the writing desk. Each time someone grabbed hold of it from the other side and shook it, she would jump. Her nerves were frayed. She knew the dead body of her friend Abby Borden was just on the other side of that door, and just beneath her feet, in the sitting room below, lay Andrew Borden beneath the bloody sheet. Lizzie moved restlessly about her bedroom. At one point, she pulled back her red portier behind, behind her bed and noticed her hook and eye had been pulled from her door. Gritting her teeth, she screwed the hook back in, into the door frame and latched it as Alice looked on. Thursday, August 4th, 1892. Bloody towels and barn dust. Between 11.39 and 11.40 a.m., Officer William Medley arrived at the Borden house. After inquiring for Assistant Marshal Fleet, who had not yet arrived, he walked around the cellar door at the back of the house and, tied it, and tried it. Finding it locked, he looked around generally and went into the house. Mr. Fleet had by then arrived. When Medley entered the house, he saw Fleet, Mr. Mullaney, Miss Russell, Mrs. Churchill, one or two doctors, and Lizzie Borden. Minutes later, Officer Medley entered Mrs. Borden's bedroom to talk with her. Medley, where was Bridget when Andrew was murdered? Lizzie, she was upstairs in her room. Medley, where were you? Lizzie, I was upstairs in the barn. Officer Medley's witness statement reports concerning his conversation with Lizzie was as follows. She said she was upstairs in the barn and upon coming into the house found her father all cut and bleeding on the lounge. She then called Maggie and then Mrs. Churchill. She did not have any idea who could have done it. I inquired about some cloths, which looked to be, to me, like small towels. They were covered with blood, and in a pail half filled with water, and in the wash cellar. She said that was all right. She had told the doctor all about that. I then asked her how long the pail and its contents had been there, and she said three or four days. I asked the doctor about it, and he said it had been explained to him, and it was all right. I then had a talk with Bridget about the pail and its contents. She said she had not noticed the pail until that day, and it could not have been there three, two days before, or she would have seen it and put the contents in the wash, as that was the day she had done the washing. The bucket or pail of bloody rags in the board and cellar had been looked over the day of the murders. It was originally standing, half filled with water, as Officer Medley testified. It was later found overturned on the washroom floor with the towels nestled beneath it. Was this the slop pail filled with three bloody towels from the guest room where Lizzie cleaned up after the murder, you know, after murdering Abby? Barn dust. Officer Medley, after hearing Lizzie's statement that she had been in the loft of the barn, left her bedroom. He came down the stairs and went through the room where Mr. Borden lay and out of the house and into the barn and upstairs. He found the door of the barn fast with a hasp over the, sta over the staple and an iron pendant. He saw quite a number of people outside in the yard. One or two officers, Mr. Sawyer at the back of the doorstep, and Mr. Wixon and someone else. He couldn't recall them all. Officer Medley testified at the Superior Court trial that I went upstairs in the barn until I reached about three or four steps from the top. And while there, part of my body was above the floor, above the level of the floor, and I looked around the barn to see if there was any evidence of anything that had been disturbed, and I didn't notice that anything 
had or seemed to be disturbed, and I stooped low to see if I could discern any marks on the floor of the barn having been made there. I did that by stooping down and looking across the bottom of the barn floor. I didn't see any, and I reached out my hand to see if I could make any impression on the floor of the barn, and I did by putting my hand down, and I found that I made an impression on the floor. There was hay dust and other dust on the floor. I could see the marks I had made quite distinctly when I looked for them. Then I stepped up on the top and took four or five steps on the outer cotton, on the outer edge of the barn floor, the edge nearest the stairs. I came up to see if I could discern those, and I did. I could see the prints plainly. There were no other footsteps in the dust but mine. I came down the steps and searched around a pile of lumber and other stuff that was in the yard, looking for anything that we could find. And after a while, I met Mr. Fleet. The little door for hay and the two windows in the barn loft were all closed. It was very hot up there. When asked soon after he arrived at, at the house, Officer Midley went up into the barn loft. If, Mr. if Officer Medley had went up in the barn loft, he answered perhaps eight or ten minutes. Alfred Clarkson arrived at the boarding house around 11.40. He looked about the property and said he finally entered the barn around 11.48. He testified three or four men went up into the loft before him. When he did ascend the steps, someone had opened the small hay door on the south side of the loft, and he saw an indentation in the hay that looked as though a man may have laid there. His testimony was treated with, with derision during the Superior Court trial, as his measurements of a few inches to the indentation of the hay could hardly be the size of a man lying there. If Mr. Clarkson did enter the barn, it is likely he just missed Officer Medley, who had just vacated in a minute or two before. His testimony as to the time he entered the barn may have been suggested by the defense to put him there earlier than he was. Others came forward claiming to have been in the barn loft before Officer Medley. One by one, their testimonies were tossed aside. Two young enterprising boys, Thomas E. Barlow and Everett Brown, who were dubbed Brownie and Me by the newspapers, claimed to have been the first ones in the barn loft at 11.23. They testified to seeing Officer Doherty dashing back across the 2nd Street as they came up to the boarding house. Officer Doherty arrived at the house at 11.35 and had been there at least 10 minutes or more before he ran to make a phone call to Marshall Hilliard and came dashing back. That puts the time they, they saw Doherty closer to 11.50 or later. So much for Brownie and me and their timeline. When Thomas Barlow testified that the loft was cool that forenoon, Attorney Knowlton was incredulous. It was cool up in the loft on the barn? Yes, sir, the young boy answered. The two boys were later found to be delinquents with a history of missing work and vandalism. Okay, guys, that's it for today. Um... I want to get some yard work done. It's starting to cool down, so that's why I'm not going to go on. But uh, we will continue next Sunday. That's what, July 3rd, right? Same time, same place. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the read. I enjoyed reading. Tomorrow we have a great guest on. Medium Mark Anthony is going to be with us, and he is going to be talking about King Tut in ancient Egypt. And he does some, some research there, and he also has... I believe he's been in contact with some with people like Cleopatra and different, you know, King Tut and you know his family and different people from from ancient Egypt. So we're going to be talking with him tomorrow at 6:30 p.m. I want to thank all of you for coming today, and I really appreciate it. Um, if you're watching from YouTube, 
please subscribe if you're watching from facebook please follow or you know the more followers the better if you're watching from twitch please follow and again if you like the show share it with five people if you hated the show share it with share it with five of your enemies because we are equal opportunity here and again i really appreciate you coming in and i will see you all tomorrow at six o'clock uh, 6 30 i'm sorry see you tomorrow 6 30 p.m pacific bye